Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good morning, and thank you for joining host Cheryl Esposito for an intriguing hour of Leading Conversations. Each week, Cheryl brings together big thinkers to the Voice America Business Channel. Now here's your host, Cheryl Esposito. Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito. Today we have a special guest. Actually, he has returned. We have spoken with his guest before. His name is Mark Gerson, and he is one of the key architects of the field of global leadership. I can't wait to hear you talk about what's going on, Mark, about in the world today. He's an experienced facilitator in high-conflict zones. He has advised a wide variety of organizations, including the U.S. Congress, multinational corporations, and the United Nations Development Program. He gets around a bit. Mark is author of several books, um, Leading Through Conflict, How Successful Leaders Transform Differences into Opportunities, and his most recent, American Citizen, Global Citizen, How Expanding Our Identities Makes Us Safer, Stronger, and Wiser, and Builds a Better World. Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you, Cheryl. It's good to be with you. It's wonderful to have you here again. Thank you for returning to Leading Conversations and letting us in on what you've been up to. Now, you've been busy since we talked. Where are you today? I'm in Boulder, Colorado, uh, not traveling. I uh, having been just come back from Japan and Korea and uh, also Kenya. Ah, wow. What were you doing in Kenya? Uh, Kenya was a U.N. assignment um, oh. where I am, was charged with bringing together political parties into uh, greater alignment so that they could implement their new constitution. A small job, Mark. (laughs) Wow. Well, I hope to hear a little bit more detail about that later in the show. So, Mark, um, talk to us a bit about the whole field of global leadership and why that matters to you. You have focused on this for a long time. What first drew you to want to do work in this field? Cheryl, I think it was a very simple thing. I watched national leaders and corporate leaders um, and religious leaders um, lead, quote-unquote, right, lead. And what that meant was looking out for the interests of their country or their company or their religion. Well, those leaders, needless to say, found themselves often pitted against other leaders, and there was often conflict. And I thought to myself... You know, we've got lots of leaders of the parts. Mm. Is there anybody who's going to be a leader of the whole? And how do we develop a generation of leaders who are leaders of the whole rather than leaders of the parts? Because we need leaders of the whole now, just like, you know, a a city needs a mayor. You know, a city needs a mayor that looks out for the whole city. 
right. um, we need leaders who are going to look out for the whole planet, the whole of humanity, the whole world. And I thought, well, that's global leadership. So I became a student of global leadership 10, 15 years ago and have contributed to the field and feel, feel that it's an extremely important field at this time. Well, it really is. And, of course, you know, being U.S.-centric here, I immediately go to um, what's happening currently in the U.S. and has been for many, many years around our politics and how the leaders in the political parties can't seem to understand what the whole is. And that's happening not just here in the U.S., it's happening in countries around the world. What, what do you think is going to take to cross the threshold where leaders begin to understand their job is bigger than protecting the, um, oh, the politics? Mm-hmm. Well, let's start with the U.S. Um, let's start with the U.S. and see if we branch outward. But the, starting with the U.S., what I would say is that most Americans are beginning to be aware of the price that we're paying for the dysfunction between the Democrats and Republicans. Mm-hmm. Um, it's as if we were all children in a family where the mother and father were having a constant divorce battle. Right. And the children are finally waking up, you know, hey, we're not actually being taken care of here. We're actually being used in a divorce fight. Mm-hmm. That's the way I, I sense a lot of Americans waking up to the fact that uh, these leaders of ours are often not looking out for us. They're actually looking out for Democratic or Republican interests. Right. And um, they can say, well, we get elected by, you know, appealing to real people. But, uh, in fact, what happens in most communities is that, that the leaders come in and they divide Democrats against Republicans, and their goal is to, you know, whatever they do is to get more votes than they lose. And so we actually have divided communities here at home, and the price is growing. But we have a, a flourishing economy relative to some of the other countries that I work in. We have a strong economy. We have a stable political system relative to other countries. So we can afford to waste an enormous amount of time, energy, and money on this political bickering. And that's what we're doing now. We're wasting an enormous amount of time and money and energy. Uh, in other countries where I work, um, you know, it literally costs lives when that happens. It costs lives. And when that starts happening in the United States, we're going to see a, a voter, a citizen revolt. Hmm. Well, and in what, what way could it cost lives? In the United States? Well, it could yeah. cost lives by uh, spending two years passing health care legislation, mm. then, pass it, then spending a couple of years trying to repeal it, yeah. and all the while having a dysfunctional health care system and a health insurance system where people don't get the care they need, where they don't have insurance, where they avoid doing things because it costs too much, and, and people get sick and die because we have an inferior quality of health care to Canada or the Scandinavian countries because our politicians will not sit down and find the best solution. In fact, they turn health care legislation into a political football every two years or every four years so they can get political points and score points and get votes. And and we don't really, in the end, uh, we really want a health care system that works more than we want, um, you know, this, 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 this sacred chance to pull a lever every two or four years. We'd like a health care system. So let's talk a bit about this takes me to the concept of global intelligence. Ah, beautiful. So tell me about this. Well, I think most of your listeners are probably aware of, you know, IQ because we are tested for that in school. Um, they're probably aware of EQ that grows out of, you know, the whole emotional intelligence field. Mm-hmm. Um, and some may be aware of, the, you know, the concepts of social intelligence or economic intelligence or financial intelligence. Um, and we all know why we need those kinds of intelligences now. Right. I have introduced the concept of global intelligence, or GQ, because 
what I noticed is that you'll have some very, very smart people who are very smart in their own cultural context, and as soon as they get outside their cultural context, they can do some things that are really stupid. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's happening, you know, militarily. It's happening economically. I see it with companies all the time. You know, they're an American company or a Chinese company or a, or a French company, and they head outside of their own cultural terrain, and they screw up. And they screw up because they've got low global intelligence. And they may have very, very high, you know, economic intelligence or financial intelligence or even management intelligence, but they start getting out of their culture, and um, they do stupid things. Right. Well, and, and so let's take a company that's a multinational corporation. Let's take BP. You know, I had a huge issue in the last couple of years mm-hmm. around a um, major, major event, and it seemed like the leadership of that organization um, did not have what you are describing in terms of global intelligence about the way to deal with cultures um, around the world, the way to deal with at least their CEO (laughs) presented Mm -hmm. himself that way. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you think that that was because of lack of awareness? I mean, do you think that they just really were not connected to the idea that whatever they do in one place affects multiple layers and multiple levels of peoples and organizations and systems around the world? Well, that's an excellent question, Cheryl, and it, but it, it, I need to give a little background to answer it, which is that I, in, in my book, American Citizen, Global Citizen, I describe different levels of citizenship. And what you often have in a corporation is someone who, at, a, at the CEO level, who's an extremely skillful uh, business person in terms of looking out for the interests of their company, its shareholders, and its employees. Mm-hmm. Um, they may rise to the top because they have very high what I would call corporate intelligence. And they're rewarded for having high corporate intelligence. You know, what are your quarterly returns? What's return on investment? You know, how, so I, I really want to honor them for their high corporate intelligence. But what you have with the BP case that you're mentioning is, uh, and I call that, by the way, Citizen 3.0. I mean, to be able to think yeah. about the best interest of your company or the best interest of your country, uh, that in my terminology I call Citizen 3.0. It's better than just thinking about yourself, It's certainly, which is Citizen 1.0. It's better than just thinking about your group or your department, which is Citizen 2.0. To be able to think about the best interest of your entire company, your entire multinational company that might involve, you know, thousands and thousands of people and hundreds of millions of dollars around the world, that takes high corporate intelligence, which I call Citizen 3.0. But what happens when you have an explosion of an oil well in the Gulf is that your corporate system is intersecting with not only the ecosphere, but it's intersecting with multiple countries. And so suddenly your corporate intelligence, your Citizen 3.0, doesn't cut it. You actually need Citizen 4.0, which is how do you deal with multiple cultures, And Citizen 5.0, which is how do you deal with all living things, including the ecosystem, you need a higher level of intelligence, which I call global intelligence. And many corporate leaders, we find that crucial moment when that corporate leader, um, you know, when the the rubber hits the road, Mm. we see that they've got high corporate intelligence and extremely low global intelligence, which is why I'm, I'm focusing in my book on how do we raise our global intelligence in time to take care of our, our shared home, which we call Earth. I love the way you put that, our shared home, which we call Earth. Um, I was fortunate enough to be in front of you in February when you did a, um, when you were speaking at a leadership 
um, forum, and you showed a visual of the earth that just, I think everyone in the audience was so touched by it. And, you know, explain a little bit if you can. Describe that visual for us. Well, I am showed many, Cheryl. Which one are you thinking of? Well, I believe it was from um, the Hubble. Ah, yes. Well, you know, I take people in my, when I, I lead people with organizations, companies, uh, communities on some, what I call the global citizen journey. And I do that by taking them into outer space uh, visually, um, you know, using the, you know, Hubble, to, Hubble and yeah. NASA photography and video. And I take uh, people into outer space because if you read the stories of the, of the astronauts and cosmonauts who come from, you know, 37 different cultures, what, what happened to all of them when they went into outer space was they developed a global perspective. They, to use my language, they, their global intelligence spiked, you know, because uh-huh. that experience of orbiting around the Earth, they all said the same thing, you know, even those who were, these were scientists, technicians, you know, engineers, they all talked like philosophers and spiritual leaders when they came back. They talked about the oneness of the planet and the beauty of it and how it's calling on our highest selves and how we need to work together to take care of our home. And they spoke really quite beautifully because it was a transformative experience. And the question I've asked myself since then, you know, which is, well, okay, if that's such a transformative experience, why don't we all take it? We don't have to actually go into outer space on a rocket. We can actually... Um, you know, create a darkened room and create the right ambiance and the right music and then use the visuals and go on that journey like they did for that transformation because that's an experience that allows us to come back to whatever we're coming back to, whether it's the BP crisis or, you know, uh, an energy crisis or, you know, we run an auto company, we're building cars or, you know, we're the head of a country or we work in Congress. It allows us to come back to our terrestrial role and look at it from Citizen 5.0. It allows us to look at it from a global perspective and say, I know I have to look out for my family. I know I have to look out for my community. I know I have to look out for my company. But can I also at the same time look out for the earth? And what would that involve? Well, I know that all of us in that forum were so touched. Our hearts were touched and our minds were expanded and we were transported. And I remember distinctly having the sense that if we could bring people into a room from multiple cultures and multiple places in the world and sit down together and if the only thing we did was that and then talk about mm-hmm. what does that feel like? What, what does that bring to mind? What, what is that doing for you? Uh, my imagination tells me that we would create such a solid foundation to then begin to talk about what you were talking about, which is how we all, we're all connected. We all matter to one another. We cannot um, think we are mutually exclusive in our actions and in our thinking. And it was a very powerful moment. I love the way you did that. Well, Cheryl, you just did an exquisite job of, of, of stating my dream. And my dream is that any... Any meeting of any company or any country or any organization that's dealing with global issues starts um, with some kind of, you know, experience of the fact that we're global citizens. So it starts mm-hmm. with an experience of a, a global journey so that we come to the, you know, come to our challenge, whatever it is, whether it's a, a corporate decision about how to expand our business or, you know, it's a U.S. decision about where to deploy, you know, these resources or this aid or these soldiers that we do it from a global perspective because what's happening now is that we're making, we're seeing lots of leaders, quote-unquote, 
making decisions in the best interest of their country or their company. Yeah. And it's not adding up to a safe and sustainable world. Right, right. Well, and of course, you know, it's complicated, right? Those decisions are complicated. Um, And because there are so many layers of complexity with um, agreements that were made, multiple agreements that have been made with multiple countries that often aren't in conflict with each other. These agreements, you know, i.e. the U.S. says one thing to Iran and then says something different to Iraq, and it's like, oh, yes, but we're going to honor both of those agreements, even though they really don't line up. Um, and this happens a lot in politics, and, and typically for short-term gain, which is not very different from what goes on in corporations, looking at the short-term gain. And so we're going to take a break, but when we come back, Mark, I'd like us to take a look at... What are some of the business implications around um, global citizenry and our global intelligence? We'll be right back. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Find out about new shows, featured guests, and what's up this week. Find us on Facebook by searching keyword Voice America. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. Leadership is a vital skill set in today's competitive global economy. Being a leader is not enough. To succeed, you must optimize your performance and know how to imbue others in your organization with leadership skills. Practical, actionable leadership insights are the focus of Leadership Development News, hosted each Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, by Kathy Greenberg and Relly Nadler on the Voice America Business Channel. Doctors Greenberg and Nadler, who coach global leaders on how to be most effective, will share their insights and contacts. The path to leadership excellence begins here. Have you heard about sustainable investing? Simply put, it's investing in companies that commit to a resource to enhance the quality of life so it is not depleted or permanently damaged. And that means that resource will be around to benefit for the future. Join host Kara McMillan for Demand More, a program that will take you behind the scenes of sustainable investing. You'll learn to create wealth and feel great about it. In this economic period, you can lead, follow, or run away. It's your choice. Tune in Tuesdays at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific, on the Voice America Business Channel. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790, 866-472-5790, Voice America Business Network. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. Well, welcome back to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito, and our very special guest today is Mark Gerson, 
So, Mark, we've been talking about global intelligence. Let's look at what the implications are for business, for small business, for large business, for multinational corporations. Why does it matter that people look at raising their global intelligence? How is this going to impact the economics or or the overall economy of not only a country but a world? Well, let's start with a concrete example, um, and then we can see what where we go from there. The concrete example I pick is IBM, which, you know, discovered that it was a multinational corporation some years ago, but was not a global corporation. And now, what's the, the difference? It, well, the CEO wrote a piece uh, called uh, called about the globally integrated enterprise, and basically challenged. He said he basically challenged his own company. He said we're a multinational company, but we still think like an American company. That has operations around the world. Right. He said, we have to change from being an American company that operates around the world and become a globally integrated enterprise. That's what he called it. And he said, we need to start to think like a global company. Now, what he was defining there was the shift from being an American multinational to being a global company. And I've just come back from Korea and Japan, and, and I've been in China. And I can guarantee you that the same thing is happening there. You've got Chinese companies and Korean companies and Japanese companies operating globally. And what they're realizing is we're a Chinese company operating globally. We're a Japanese company operating globally. And I'll say to the CEO or the senior, senior executives, I'll say, what are the disadvantages of being a Japanese company versus a global company? And we then articulate the differences. And they quickly realize, as, as, as IBM's leader did, that it's to their advantage to be a global company if they're operating globally. What does that mean? What's the fundamental difference? The fundamental difference is that the senior executives do not think like a culture. They think like, they don't think like Americans or they don't think like French or they don't think like Chinese. They think like global citizens. And that means actually seeing the world as a whole, not seeing it through the lens of your own culture. Mm-hmm. And what I'm fascinated by and excited by is that this is happening to uh, companies all over the world, whether they're Chinese, American, Russian, French. They're all realizing we have to become, a sh- we have to have a mind shift. Uh, we have to have a, a shift in our mindset. Uh, from a, a national mindset to a global mindset if we're going to compete effectively in a global economy. So, you know, I, when you say we have to have a mind shift, it makes me think sometimes that businesses drive cultural shifts in, com- in countries. And there's an opportunity here for businesses to drive that kind of cultural shift, i.e., in the U.S. or in other countries, do you, do you think that they're ahead of the game? Well, some are ahead of the game and some are behind. And so this is my particular passion. And one of the reasons I wrote American Citizen, Global Citizen, was because I wanted them to have a simple, clear challenge to their way of working in the world. And so I wrote about, in the first chapter is called Opening Your Eyes. And in terms of a company, you know, it, opening your eyes means stop seeing the world through the lens of your own product line and through the lens of your own corporate interests. Mm-hmm. Start by seeing the world as it is, and then you can work back from there to your own corporate interests. But what happens is you have companies who set off outside their own cultural frame of reference, outside their own national borders. They go off and they you know, trample over other people's interests or cultural habits or needs, or, or, and, and, and then they say, oh, why are people angry with us? Why, are right. people, why do we have a negative image in this country? Well, because you set off never asking yourself, how does, our, how, do, how, do, how does this look from a global perspective? They just set off from a corporate or national perspective. And, 
it won't work. I mean, the classic, everybody knows the classic stories about, you know, the car company that creates a Nova in the United States, a Chevy Nova, and then goes to, United, to, goes to Mexico and notices the Chevy Nova is not selling. Well, Nova in Spanish means Nova, no go. It won't go. It won't work. <laughs> so they just named their car. It won't work. <laughs> you know, and they go, oh, Great. we have to rename our car. Now, that's, everybody knows simple stories like that. Mm-hmm. But what I'm talking about is the deeper awareness that you have to not just look at a country in terms of the market and the potential sales of what you can get there or whether the labor is cheaper. Mm-hmm. You have to actually see that country as it is and, and, and in order to know how to enter it in a way that's going to create a long-term, sustainable business interest for your own company. When I think about the development of human beings as related to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, we are told so often, and in our understanding of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, is that if the base is not taken care of, if the foundation is not taken care of, no one's ever going to get to an existential look at themselves. So if they don't have um, food and shelter, um, you know, they don't really care about the bigger picture. And so when I think about companies that are trying to become successful, um, you know, that would be, you know, starting out, that would be the equivalent of, you know, building their food and shelter, right? And so, and yet, you know, um, and I think about the people in our culture who don't necessarily have a global perspective. And when the story is that, that the culture is living in, that the economy is bad and, you know, things are, are tough and jobs are rare and um, prices are going up, etc. And it appears and this is kind of the rest of the story, it appears that um, the global economy may be to blame for that, um, which is the big story, that, especially in the U.S., that, that you know, it, it floats around here. How do you get people to move past that? You know, I mean, if you, were, if you look at the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, they're stuck, right? Well, what you're saying, to put it simply, you're saying, Mark, if people are worried about their food, their clothing, their shelter, their income, can you actually, can, why should they think globally? Don't they need to think about those needs first? And, and I would say, yes, they need to think about those needs first. But what I'm basically saying, and it's, I'm very clear about it in my book, is that to get those basic needs met, we have to think globally today. And so, for right. example, you know, in most congressional districts in most parts of the country, a third to a half of the jobs depend on the foreign economy, the global economy. The value of the dollar in people's pockets depends on the global economy. So I'm not saying don't look out for your own interests. I'm not saying don't look out for your own financial well-being. I'm saying in order to look out for your own financial well-being, you need to understand the global forces that are impinging on your job, on your community, on your company. You need to understand those global forces, otherwise you'll be helpless in front of them. And I can give very concrete examples about companies that fail to do that, and paid the price, and other companies that did it successfully uh, and, are, and are flying high. And every, most people in business know the concept of localization. You need to take your product line and localize it so that it fits, and, and fits in, into different cultures if it's going to sell. And I tell the story in my book of Microsoft, you know, that you know, set off, Bill Gates set off at first thinking, okay, well, we'll just, uh, we'll just sell our Microsoft software, you know, just we'll sell it globally. We might need right. a little translation here or there, but you know, other than translating a little bit, well, you know, we'll just send send it around the world. And you know, he learned very quickly um, that taking your software global 
meant actually understanding that that was going to be different in a Japanese-speaking culture than an English-speaking culture, and the, and the implications of that were profound. And it took him some time and some money till he really realized, and Microsoft realized, if for us to be the preeminent global software company, we're going to have to localize our products not once, not twice, but many, many times mm. to have them translate well into these different cultures. And that's the process of raising your global intent. It worked for them. <laughs> it worked for them very well, but it took them some time. And the story I tell in my book was, you know, the, ju- the, the, the bumps in the road. And my hope is that most companies today won't have to hit all those bumps that Microsoft mm-hmm. hit. Well, and what, what are some examples of those bumps? Well, one bump is to say, um, you know, I, well, one bump is to say, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go, let's tell, I tell the story of an engineer who wanted to, you know, wanted to have his company do the engineering work in Africa. And, you know, he noticed that other people had gone to Africa and they were selling it totally on the engineering merits of their, of their project. You know, the engi- good engineering, good price. Um, you know, what's the problem here? Why aren't we making the sale? And what he did was he actually studied the cultures that he went to. He studied Ethiopia. He studied Kenya. He actually studied their culture, studied something about the language. And when he went there, he made a good business case. But he also was able to refer to some of the cultural challenges they're facing. He was able to use some of the words of their language. And he came away with the contract. And the lesson he told me when I, when I interviewed him, the lesson he said was, you know, he said, we're, we're crazy if we think we can just go in to another country and make a business case as if we yeah. were just, you know, at, at home. No, you've got right. to demonstrate some level of understanding of the culture you're dealing with. And he now spends, whenever he goes to make a sale around the world, he spends a week or two really you know, studying that culture, getting to know it, I would say raising his global intelligence mm-hmm. so that when he's there, he has some awareness of the context in which he's making his sale. Mm-hmm. Do you have um, leaders today that you speak with who don't buy into this? Oh, you say who, say who resist the message I'm delivering? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. There, there are still some who feel... Um, there's still some who feel that, um, you know, let's say take America or France. You know, American is best or French is best. We know how to do this. Right. The rest of the world, it's also quite German, quite common with German companies. Mm. We know how to do this. Um, you should do it our way. Mm. Um, we're a successful German company. Mm. Um, if you're joining our company, you don't have to learn to speak German, but learn to do this our way. Mm. And what I'm finding is that that's a very common attitude in the early stages of globalizing a company because you're building on the success you've had in your own culture or your own region. And right. you're thinking, hey, we're successful. Look at all the money we've made. I'm CEO. Right. We're right. just going to continue to do this as we spread around the world. And it's only when they spread out of their comfort zone and they start getting the negative economic consequences that they say, oh, actually, we need to raise our global intelligence. As I quote, I quote one of my, my, my business leaders who said, Tom Friedman says the world is flat. He said, but actually it's pretty bumpy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so in the book, you describe four major skill areas, and I love the way you've captured these. Um, and one of the first ones you've already mentioned, um, the skill of witnessing, opening our eyes. And it sounds to me like that's a real um, acknowledgement. I just first have to acknowledge it's different than it might be in my head or it might be different from my own experience. Yes, that's a key first step. And I'll just mention that a reason I pick phrases like open your eyes or open your heart or open your mind or open your hands as the key concepts in the book was that my book is 
been translated into, into seven different languages, and I've, I knew it was going to be translated a lot. And, and when people translate, if you give them complicated terms like witnessing, yes. um, they can translate that in kind of crazy ways. But if you say opening our eyes, whether it's Chinese or Korean or Vietnamese or Japanese, it doesn't matter. They, they can translate opening our eyes because I'm using very simple body-based language. Yeah. And opening our eyes is, is the first step for me because what I see all too often is that people rush off around the world, sometimes with very good intentions. I mean, not just always to make money in another country, but sometimes to do good in another country. Mm. And I watch it backfire. And when you look back and say, well, why did that backfire in Iraq? Or why did that backfire in uh, the Sudan? Or why did that backfire when we tried to do this or that? It's often because the people who went there really didn't open their eyes first. They didn't actually see the country. And, and uh, the way I teach that is by showing people the difference between orbiting the Earth and then looking at a, a map like you have on your schoolroom wall. It's a totally different right. experience because the map on your schoolroom wall is actually not the Earth. It's just somebody's picture, uh, somebody's mm-hmm. picture of it. And that's mostly, when, mostly what happens is companies go into countries and often our U.S. government goes into countries with an image or, an, or a map of that country and virtually no understanding of the actual forces. And, and by the way, this is not an accusation I'm making idly. I, you know, members of the, you know, of, of, of leaders of the, of the U.S. military have said, we entered Iraq and Iran with far less knowledge than we should have had about those cultures. Yeah. Um, and, and, and people close to Kennedy, like Robert McNamara, said, we had a deep understanding of the Russians when we confronted them at the Bay of Pigs and in, with the Cuban Missile Crisis. We had a deep understanding of the Russians, but we really did not understand the Vietnamese. That's Robert McNamara, the mm. Secretary of Defense. So yes. high-level people are admitting that we did not understand. We had very low global intelligence when we entered certain cultures, and, and that is a price we could no longer afford to pay. Right, right. Well, the... In your, in your book, you tell a story that I just love. You tell many stories, and you've captured many stories um, throughout your um, process of writing this book. And you tell one um, that is about a group that is trekking Kilimanjaro, and that the group was um, a mix of four Muslims from different nations, four Americans, a half a dozen more from other countries around the world, and they were pretty successful in their climb, and at 15,000 feet, they were getting ready to prepare for the final, final trek the next day. And I was so touched by this story, and... Can you can you just sum it up a little bit? Do you remember the story? Sure. I mean, the experience. It was a global bound, global global outward bound uh, leadership expedition that I co-led with an African colleague, and the whole purpose was to see what happens to Muslims, Americans, and folks from other countries when they climb a nineteen thousand foot peak together. And at fifteen thousand feet, um, you know, by that point, we had really become a team. And what I noticed was how. First of all, the, the Muslims all noticed that the group of Americans, about six of them, were, each person was totally different from the other. I mean, we had some that were going to zip to the top because they were in great shape. We had others that were fading fast. We had some that were, we just had a wide variety of Americans, and the Muslims, kind of all of their stereotypes of Americans just kind of dropped away. Mm-hmm. And then the Americans were faced with a, you know, a Filipino Muslim 
and a Muslim from Oman, and a mo- Muslim from India. Yeah. And, 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 and it, four different cultural contexts, and they noticed these folks didn't even share the same language. Yeah. Um, they were totally different from each other, and they were all Muslims. And so I think it was partly the, the backdrop of the mountain, but it was also this, the, the vividness of realizing what are these categories that we use when, when, when we talk about Muslims or, we, or they talk about Americans. What are these categories that we use? They're, they're these mental, um, simplified ideas that actually have no, it's kind of like the difference between the map and the earth, you know. It, they have no relationship to the complexity and beauty and richness mm-hmm. of what's actually there. Well, and I love the way um, one of the Outward Bound guides summed it up as he was listening to everybody talk about the importance and what they're learning from this. And he says, I'm noticing that no one is saying this is about reaching the summit of Kilimanjaro. Everyone here is focused on other people. The way I would put it, you will remember the mountain, but you will remember each other more. Mm -hmm. And then one of the Muslim men said, is there some way, with tears in his eyes, that we can bring the whole world into our small blue tent? Mm-hmm. Beautiful. That's Thank so you. beautiful. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah. Well, on that, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we'll have more with Mark Gerson. what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexasaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. If you are looking to take your leadership abilities to the next level, then don't miss Unleashed for Impact with your host, Paula Morand. Paula will explore concepts such as time management, productivity, and using humor in the workplace to help you in becoming the leader you've always wanted to be. Her guests will inspire you with stories of their leadership journeys and how they influence both business and personal growth. Unleashed for Impact airs live every Friday at noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Entrepreneurship is the most exciting and misunderstood career in the world. Win or lose, entrepreneurs always get back up, ready to fight another day. Anthony Lacopo, an ambitious entrepreneur, tackles a key question about entrepreneurship, talks to real entrepreneurs, and shares his personal experience in dealing with the issues faced by most of you, whether you're just starting up or managing a company that wants to change the world. Tune in to The Entrepreneur with host Anthony Lacopo, Mondays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific, on the Voice America Business Channel. Whether the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now, toll-free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. 
We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. And welcome back to Leading Conversations. Our guest today is Mark Gerson, who is the author of American Citizen, Global Citizen, How Expanding Our Identities Makes Us Safer, Stronger, Wiser, and Builds a Better World. So, Mark, let's continue our conversation uh, and move into um, the next three of these skills that you've identified, of the four skills you've identified that are important for developing our global intelligence. And the first one was opening our eyes which we've talked about. The second one you call opening our minds, the skill of learning and unlearning. Tell us about that. Well, I think I'll stress the unlearning part because Mm. most people when they hear about global intelligence, they think, oh, I've got to learn more about the world. And, you know, it's true. We do need to learn more about the world. But um, what I say in that chapter is that you can learn more about the world and still make a bad foreign policy decision or still make a bad business decision because you might be learning more and filling it into old buckets. It's like pouring, you know, new wine into old bottle. Mm-hmm. If we just pour more data into a preset, preconceived notion about the world, all we're going to do is strengthen that cultural bias. So I say that mm-hmm. unlearning is just as important as learning. And unlearning means letting go of ideas, letting go of constructs, letting go of concepts that we were raised to believe were true as Americans or French or Russians. We were raised by our culture to believe that. And the you know simple story to bring that home is you know I I meet a man at a meeting I had in Dubai, um, I meet a man and I introduce myself. He's come there at my invitation. I say my name is Mark. He says my name is Jihad. Huh. And I said I beg your pardon. He said yes, my name is Jihad. Well, oh. you know obviously I sought him out at lunch and said you know why did that your parents call you Jihad? Because I was aware of what I'd been taught as an American, but what Jihad means you know like holy war and suicide bombers and all that. And he said, well, Jihad, in Arabic, he said, I grew up in the 50s, and my parents wanted me to be successful, so they named me Jihad, because Jihad means hard work and perseverance. And they wanted me to be a good student and get good grades, so they called me Jihad. And so, you know, it was like, I remember, I'll never forget the moment, it was like, I have to unlearn what I think Jihad means in Arabic, because it doesn't mean to to him what it meant to me. Right. And and so there's just one example of... um, you know, the power of unlearning. Um, and I never forgot that example, but it's true. You know, I see business people all the time. They're going to go into a culture um, with a preconception about what their product means or how it might be used. And, you know, just market testing or a little focus group, that's fine, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about really expanding your global intelligence so you can see that culture the way people in that culture see it before you come in with your kind of narrow corporate or narrow, you know, national agenda for what's supposed to happen there. Mm. Wow. You know, um, when I think about unlearning and I think about how biases are formed and how subtle biases can be, oftentimes people don't even know their bias. I mean, that's kind of an example of what you just talked about. You didn't really, you weren't really aware of how deeply that bias or the definition of the word jihad was that you carried, right? Right. And so acknowledging your biases to begin with would be important. Absolutely. And, and acknowledging that, uh, you know, that we're learners. And that's mm-hmm. not the typical way we go into a culture, whether we're a government official or a business person. We, mm-hmm. we go in showing how much we know. Yeah. Well, we do know a lot about 
in our country. We do know a lot about our company or our product, but we actually don't know very much about that cultural context. And and opening opening our minds is is a key to actually being able to see the culture um, and actually be able to feel into our customers or our clients or our, our right. suppliers or our partners' reality. Right, right. So the next one is opening our hearts, the skill of connecting. Yeah, I'll say a word about that because, um, you know, there's a, in, in particularly in business or foreign policy context, there's an opening our hearts sounds a little bit touchy-feely. Why do we need to do that? But, um, you know, we've had some very, very tough business people and some very tough, you know, foreign policy leaders say, until you really empathize um, with somebody, you can't you can't deal with them effectively. And I'm thinking of you know until we really empathize with what it feels like. I'll use a political example um, to have a plane go overhead and drop bombs on your village and kill innocent civilians who were you know and children uh, who were doing absolutely nothing. Yeah, we need to really be able to feel that, not just have a mental concept of civilian casualties, yeah. you know. Yeah. But, but, but actually feel what it's like for a foreign power to do that to us. Mm-hmm. And, and, and most, most of us don't want to feel that because it's painful. You know, it's right. painful to feel, and it's, if you look at the statistics, almost every week, you know, United States planes are killing innocent civilians in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. You know, we're just killing innocent civilians. Um, and and it's, 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 it's turning them against us for the same reason it would turn us against somebody who came to the United States and dropped bombs on us and killed innocent people. In fact, we, we even get angry when, you know, somebody doesn't fix the potholes in our street, you know. Right. So, right. so <laughs> we, that's, that's the power of opening our heart. And I've used a negative example, but a positive example is, you know, if you're, if you're going to sell a product in a culture and it's, a, it's, it's, it's in the food world or in the com- cosmetic world or in a, whatever air terrain is, what does it actually mean and how does it feel in that culture? That's a question of opening our hearts. And, and so I really stress in that chapter, we need to learn to open our hearts and we learn, need to learn to communicate in a way that's... Many, many people say to me, oh, well, Mark, the answer is communication. You know, that's what we need. We need more communication. And I'll say, well, actually, we have plenty of communication. Mm-hmm. There's no shortage of communication in the world right. today. What right. we need is communication that connects. Mm-hmm. And that's a very different thing than communication that divides. Right. And, and so the, the, learning the art, which I try to explore in that chapter, is what is the art of communicating in a way that connects you to someone, that connects you to a culture, rather than pushes them away? And uh, that's an art that, that's not learned um, overnight. Boy, that's for sure. And, you know, it seems that the, the way of things these days is really all about divide. Well, well there's an advantage to dividing if you want to, you know, um, if you want to be able to turn one part against the other. Yeah. Um, but, but many times what I see people doing, particularly in business, is unconsciously, unconsciously, inadvertently, uh, pushing people away by coming in with what they think is a strong business case mm-hmm. and simply for lack of understanding the culture. Um, and it's not a simple question of, you know, uh, what I find is that in the old days, people would say, oh, we're going to go to Japan to do business. We'll take a course in, you know, cross-cultural communication with the Japanese. Yeah. And you'd send your people through a week-long course to learn about, you know, how you give your business card and, and how you bow and so forth. Well, that was fine when your company could prepare people for dealing with one culture. Right. But what if you're a multinational and you're in 20 cultures? Um, you can't give 20 courses on 20 different cultures, you actually have to raise your global intelligence so that no matter where you are and no matter who you're dealing with, 
you've opened your eyes, you've opened your mind, you've opened your heart, and you can deal with those cultural differences in a sensitive and effective way. Yeah. Well, and, and that example of, you know, teaching people about the Japanese culture makes the assumption that cultures are strictly monoculture. Mm-hmm. And, in fact, there are varying um, cultures within cultures, as all you have to do is look around the U.S. You know, right. Any right. other country in the world is the same. Um, yeah, really fascinating. I, and I, when I think about what you're saying about the skill of connecting and the communication that connects, not divides, and I think about we all have heard stories about um, people who are mortal enemies who come face-to-face, begin to learn about one another, and suddenly what they've been fighting over falls away. or it's not as important, or they view it differently. And, you know, there are stories about this happening in times of war and, you know, in many, many situations. And and it seems to me that in today's world, the, uh, the issue, and we've had this for a long time, the issue of anonymity. If we get to be anonymous, then I get to stay mad at somebody, or I get to throw barbs, or I get to uh, put them down, and not begin to unlearn anything I know, not to open my mind, not to worry about who they are, what matters to them. But it's that connection piece that you're calling out that is so critical for change to happen. That's right. That's right. Unless we feel connected, um, we can't change, and we can't create a good environment for real productivity or real synergy. Yeah. Uh, we need that connection. It's not a luxury. It's not, again, a touchy-feely um, emotional intelligence goal. It's actually a, a hardcore business need. They, they, right. They've shown very clearly that when there's complex, like in aerospace, when there's a, when, when there's a complex uh, aerospace project involving people in many different cultures working together around creating a common product on a common timetable, they've shown that the real, the real the value added is the effectiveness of communication in these multicultural teams. That's what allows, you know, an Airbus to beat out a competing company for a contract. They need to work across cultures in a seamless, effective way. And that involves all of the skills we've just been talking about. Right, right. So the, the next and one of the very important skills you talk about, opening our hands, the skill of geopartnering. Talk about that. Well, I call it geopartnering as opposed to just partnering because most people in business and politics know what the meaning of the word partner is. They think, oh, it's somebody who you say, let's do a deal, let's work together, and you, you, know, you, you work together and, and you can call them a partner. Um, what I'm here talking about here is working with somebody on the other side of a divide, on the other side of a um, culture, on the other side of a frontier, or maybe on the other side of an ideology um, that I feel that to be effective globally um, it's really hard for Americans only to work with Americans or for Chinese only to work with Chinese. They try it. And particularly, the Chinese try it very effectively sometimes. They'll, you know, there's a whole Chinese community around the world, so China can work with Chinese business people, Chinese suppliers, Chinese middlemen. Um, up to a certain point, you can stay inside your own partnering world, inside your own cultural zone, and partner with inside your, that cultural zone. But ultimately, a global business has to geo-partner. And, you know, it means that if you're... You know, at Chevron Texaco, and you're going into Nigeria. You can go in and say, "Oh, we're an oil company. We're just going to go into Nigeria and take that oil." Mm. Um, but actually, in the end, to be effective, Texon, you know, Texaco has to actually 
go into Nigeria, and it has to geo-partner with the Nigerian people. And they didn't know that at first. And so there was a huge, huge backlash and enormous amount of violence and enormous amount of revenue loss because they didn't geo-partner when they went into Nigeria. They just said, we're going in to do a business deal with our, you know, with our colleagues. And this is true across the board, that geo-partnering really means um, using all the skills we've just talked about, really opening our eyes, hearts, and hands, our eyes, mind, and hearts, to really say, how can I work with my partner in a way that's truly in my partner and his or her culture's best interest? And that's a very, very different attitude to start with than how can I enter that culture to get the lowest possible you know, labor costs or the highest possible profit margin or to expand my sales to compensate for you know, decreasing domestic sales. Those are all legitimate business objectives, but if approached from a you know, citizen 3.0 perspective, which is just in terms of our self-interest or our cultural interest or our corporate interest, it will backfire very, very quickly. And that's why I think geopartnering is key. It's really talking about the way in which we work together with people different from ourselves. Mm, I love the way you say that. So you have in the book um, some very specific practices that we can begin to do today and put them to work for us. You have 20 practices in order to help us develop these four core skills more fully. I have a couple favorites, and um, I wonder if you can talk about them. One of them you've talked about a bit, increase your knowledge, including how to not know. Yes, uh, that's a way of stressing the fact that, you know, if you start to really think globally, it can be overwhelming. And you can think, oh, I don't know enough about this. I don't know enough about that. I've got to study this. I've got to take a graduate course in that. I've got to. You can start getting into the, I think, the dead end of thinking I can only go global if I know, if I know it all. Mm-hmm. And it's it's actually the art of not knowing, of being able to say I don't know this. I don't actually know. To pick an example that everyone will relate to, I don't actually understand the role of tribes in Iraq. Mm-hmm. I don't understand how tribes work. Well, that's a far better thing than to study, read three books, and and then say, now I understand tribes in Iraq. Because the truth is, if if you know that you don't know, then you'll enter Iraq in a way that says, hmm, okay, let's bring some anthropologists here. Let's really figure out, how does this whole tribal thing work? And really studying that before you, you know, try to try to pacify a region. Whether you're a business, if you're a business, it's the same thing. Rather than saying, you know, we've done our market study, we know that there's a need for our product in Brazil, um, to actually say to yourself. You know, how can we find uh, how can we find a, a, a deeper knowledge of Brazil so we, we actually can go in there and actually understand the cultural context of what we're selling? I mean, I'm thinking of beauty products, for example. You know, there's a you know Western co- or Northern cosmetic companies will go into Brazil trying to sell products, and they have absolutely no business there because there's some different practices that women, particularly women, have in Brazil about what kind of cosmetics they like and how they like to use them. If you don't understand that. You're going to waste an enormous amount of time selling your beauty products to a culture that has a different idea of what beauty looks like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And that also, um, we just have a, a minute left here. The, one of the other ones I love is you say to learn to see through walls. Yes, um, I say that because, you know, my feeling is there are walls in our world. Um, you and I are probably sitting in rooms right now with walls. And, 
they can stop our vision, you know, just the same way a frontier, like a national frontier, like the borders of America. They can stop our vision. But, you know, I feel what we really need to do is we need to learn to see through walls because the Internet, um, you know, Google Earth, um, reading newspapers from different cultures, talking to people in different cultures, we have a, a wide, wide range of ways now of actually seeing beyond walls, of reaching beyond walls, and seeing what's on the other side of a wall, and we need to use those. We can no longer afford to let that wall stop us from seeing who's on the other side and, and what they need. Well, Mark, this has been a great hour, and our time is up, so let people know how they can reach you or what they, where they can learn more about you. Uh, the easiest thing to do is to go to www.mediatorsfoundation.org um, and to read my book, American Citizen Global Citizen, which is available on Amazon. Um, and those two ways are very clear. One is a book, one is a website, um, to find out a little bit more about who I am and what I do. And, and I just want to say if there's any way that I can help anybody who's listening to raise their global intelligence, either their community or their company, I'd be glad to, glad to help. Wonderful. Mark, it's been an honor having you here, and thank you for coming back to Leading Conversations. And uh, your work is vital in the world, and, and it is really wonderful to know you as a human being. It's a pleasure, Cheryl. Thank you so much. And remember, everyone, to think big, because the world could be a better place because of a conversation that matters. This is Cheryl Esposito. Thank you for spending this hour with Cheryl Esposito and Leading Conversations. You can listen live every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you have a question or comment for Cheryl, please email her at leadingconversations at alexaconsulting.com. That's L-E-A-D-I-N-G-C-O-N-V-E-R-S-A-T-I-O-N-S at A-L-E-X-S-A-C-O-N-S-U-L-T-I-N-G.com. See you next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.